turn their mission loose in the world. So it's not for everybody, but it's the perfect place for some. And you can help us find those students for whom this is the perfect place. You can help us find them and them find us. If you stop out at the table, take some literature, you probably know a student. You get close to them, you can feel the warmth of their passion for ministry burning inside them. You know that they want their college years to count for more than just an academic degree. You know, you know that they want to use those years to make a difference in the world. That, that's the kind of place we are. So if you'll take some literature and pass it on to them or pass along their name to us and we can get in touch with them, we would think that that would be a great way for you to serve them and us and especially our Heavenly Father. Well, by now you found Romans 15, I hope. Beginning of this year, actually about a year ago this time, we were, we were trying to decide what God wanted for our verse of the year, a verse that would guide us through the year. We would share on it in chapel. It would show up on syllabi in class, and, and being, uh, our students and staff would be encouraged to memorize it. Well, the verse that the Lord directed us to was Romans 15, 5 and 6. At first, I didn't quite see why God had directed us to this verse, but once I got Looking at it and studying it, I realized why God had directed it as our verse of the year. So let's read Romans 15. We'll start at verse 1, read through verse 13, pay special attention to verses 5 and 6. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for His mercy. And then Paul proceeds to quote from a variety of scriptures representing the totality of the Old Testament showing how God fulfilled His plan to the Gentiles. And he concludes with these well-known words in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Gracious Father, You have for us here in Your Word what we need. And I pray that as a result of these moments spent together, that this church and these people might find what it, what it is you have for them. In Jesus' name, amen. As I began to look at these two verses, five and six, I realized that these verses describe the very thing that is in great need in our world, especially among Christians. It's these two terms, endurance and encouragement. And I realized that this is exactly what Christians need today. Not just endurance, not just to kind of grit your teeth and get through it. 
And not just encouragement, just kind of rose-colored glasses, be happy attitude, like nothing's really wrong. It's the combination of the two words that I find so striking, endurance and encouragement. There is that perseverance that we must have in order to make it through those seasons of life which are just challenging. But as Christians, we don't just go through those seasons with our teeth gritted and our eyes set. We can go through them persevering with joy. It's this endurance and encouragement combination. You might think of it as unshakable joy. Now, let me ask. If I had a bottle of pills up here that you could come and take one of those pills every day and, and live your life with unshakable joy, can I just see the hands of those who'd be in this line? I mean, who of us wouldn't want to live our lives with unshakable joy? So I thought this is a great verse to guide our students through the course of this year. Well, I'm a curious person, so I wondered, how is it that God gives this unshakable joy? It's not in a pill. How does he do it? Well, I didn't have to look very far. Just look back one verse. How does God say at least one of the ways that he provides unshakable joy? Somebody call it out. Look at verse 4. Through the scriptures. Well, now I'm really excited. I'm the president of a Bible college. I was called decades ago to give my life to the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. And now I discover that in this book, God makes available exactly what it is you and I need, unshakable joy. Well, you can imagine my joy. Well, I said I'm curious, so my question was how? How is it that God takes this word and produces through it in us unshakable joy? And I'm going to suggest there are at least four ways. If you're taking notes, you'll want to get all four of these ways. How God produces in us this unshakable joy through his word. Here's the first. To borrow the phrase of the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter, he provides through his word his very great and precious promises. God gives unshakable joy to us through the promises found in his word. I was just curious how many promises there are in his word. One website said 3,573. Another said 5,000, another said 7,000. So apparently the number is a bit up for grabs. So I started to think, okay, what would you count if you were counting these promises? Well, certainly you'd count what you might call the general promises. Statements that God makes as to what he will do without really any kind of limitations attached as to who he will do them for. So, for example, John 3.16 is a general promise. This is a promise that's for everybody. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him, general, shall have eternal life. So we can count all the general promises. But then we have a little problem because there's a bunch of promises in Scripture that you might call specific promises, like they're made to a specific person about a specific set of circumstances. I'm thinking of God's promise to Abram and Sarah to give them a son in their old age. Can I be honest? I'm not really sure I want to claim that promise. <laughs> Do we count those? Those specific promises? Let's just set that aside for a minute. We'll come back to it. Here's another category of scriptures that we can count in our list of promises. 
Every command that God makes to us is a promise. Think about it. Every command that God makes to us, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 5, is a promise. Because if the almighty, all-loving God commands you to do something, that means implied in that command is the assurance that God will give to you whatever you need to do to accomplish that command. How many of you are parents? Would you not do this for your children? You command them to do something, but you only command them to do, if you're a good parent, You only command them to do what you know they're capable of doing. You would never command them to do something that they didn't have the resources or the capability to do. Well, if we, being evil, know how to do right by our children, how much more our Heavenly Father? You with me? So think of it again. Every command that God makes in Scripture is a promise. I'll add that to your list. Here's another thing to add to your list. Every statement that's made in Scripture about the nature, the character of God, is a promise. Statements about God being a God of love, or a God of truth, or a God who is a jealous God, or a God who's a merciful God. Every statement that's made which describes the character of God is a promise. Because God, being God, will only act consistent with His character. Because God is a God of truth, you have a promise that God will always tell you the truth. Because God is a God of love, you have a promise that God will always and only do for you what is the most loving thing to do. Because God is a good God who gives good gifts to his children. That's the nature of God. What that means is we have the promise that what God sends our way, he knows how to turn to good. That's a promise. Which, by the way, is now what we do with all those specific promises. It may not be that God will give to Eileen and me a promise to have a child in our old age. I really hope he doesn't. But if God knows what is best for us, and I pray it's not a child in our old age, I pray it's something else. If God knows what is best for us, God, being God, will give us that. That's a promise. You see, the same bank account from which God wrote that check to Abram and Sarah in the name of Isaac is the same bank account from which he draws for you and me today. It's the character of God. I don't know, what are we up to? What's the number we're up to? I don't know. I don't know how to count that many promises. No wonder Peter just said the very great and precious promises. Do you have promises from God? Has he given you promises that you're holding on to in the midst of your circumstances? I wonder what they are. This is a big room, but I bet if we stood and called out those promises, we would hear some beautiful testimonies just in those references, or if you want to share the whole verse, that's fine, but I'm going to give you a chance to do that in just a minute. What's the promise that God has given to you? To me, very early on in my Christian life, God gave me John 16, 33, which says... In this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. What's the promise that's sustaining you? 
Just stand and say it. Just the reference or the verse if you want to. Just stand and say it. I know the plans I have for you. Good. Somebody else. Never leave me nor forsake me. Somebody else. Beautiful. Somebody else. Beautiful. Somebody else. Absolutely. Oh, this is wonderful. Listen, how many of you remember those promise boxes you used to have on your kitchen table? Those little plastic or melamine boxes. They had the scripture verses in it. Can I just see your hands? How many of you remember that? You can still buy those on Amazon. That's what scripture is. It's a promise box. It is filled with very great and precious promises. And if you will discover what it means, not just to memorize those promises, but to live by them, you're guaranteed unshakable joy. Here's a second way God gives unshakable joy through his word. It's by what you might call gentle correction. I remember as a young pastor back in Pennsylvania, more about 30 years ago now, I remember working hard. I was working hard to serve this church. I was doing everything I could do. I was everywhere I thought I needed to be. I was, I was saying what I thought I was supposed to say. I was working hard. And I remember in my study one morning reading from Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, that story of the two sisters, Mary and Martha. And as distinctly as you're hearing my voice right now, I heard God speaking to me and saying, Steve, you're just like Martha. You are running around trying to make me feel at home in this church, but I wish you were a little more like Mary, learning what it means to sit at my feet and to know my presence and to hear my voice. I can still remember that, 30-some years ago. And God has continued to be faithful in that way through his word, speaking those words of gentle correction. Now you say, Steve, you said you were going to talk about unshakable joy, and now you're talking about correction. And we don't usually put those two things together, right? Any kids in the room? It's not exactly joyous to be corrected, is it? So in what sense is gentle correction from God's word a source of unshakable joy? Well, I can illustrate it for you this way. How many of you have been to Yellowstone National Park? Can I see your hands? A few of us down in the States. Yellowstone is a park, a huge park that's built over uh, volcanic activity, a lot of hot spring activity. And the thing about hot springs is they bubble up this water that looks beautiful. It looks captivating. You want to get real close to it. But because it's so mineral rich, as it bubbles up, the minerals that come up out of the water and land on the surface just outside the pool harden. They harden into a kind of a mineral shelf, but it's, it's more like thin ice. It doesn't sustain the weight of a person. So you're tempted to get real close to this hot pool, but if you do get too close, you could be in the hot pool. So the National Park Service, they want, they want us to enjoy this national park, so what do they do? They build these wooden boardwalks with railings, and you get as close as you can safely get to the hot springs. You can see them, you can almost look down into them, but you're safe. And you can go anywhere along that boardwalk that you want to go, as quickly or as slowly as you want to go, and you will be safe, and you will get as safe as it is possible for you to get to enjoy the beauty without experiencing the risk. And this is what Scripture does for us. It is a light for our feet. It is a lamp for our path. 
It shows us the safe spots where we can walk. It shows us the dangerous spots to avoid. And if we will stay on the path that God has marked out for us, we will experience the unshakable joy of a life lived in freedom. Seems contradictory, right? We're, we're confined to the boardwalk. No, no, no. It's on the boardwalk of Scripture that we have our greatest freedom, kept free from the dangers that we would wander into if left to ourselves. So Scripture is a source of unshakable joy to us, kind of like a note from our mother. It may contain some corrective, but you know it's always done for our good, always for our benefit. And this is what Scripture does for us. And by following the paths that Scripture lays out for us, we can experience the unshakable joy of a life lived without the complications that come from disobedience. You with me? How many have I covered? How many do I have to go? How much time do I have to go? Don't, no, don't pay any attention to that. This next one, you're going to have to listen a little bit more closely. I'll tell you a story first, but it's a little bit more complicated. A third way that God provides unshakable joy through his word. I'll say first that God does this through a glimpse of reality. And then I'll tell you a story. How many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis? Silver chair, do you remember that story? In the silver chair, Aslan, the Christ figure, calls two children from the human world to go to, As to, to go to Narnia and to rescue a prince that's been kidnapped. The prince has been taken underground by the witch. And her, her, her goal is to brainwash him, to bewitch him, so that he will lead an army of those from the underworld back to Narnia and take it over. The children are directed underground where they find the prince. And they find the prince appearing to be perfectly sane, perfectly competent in his right mind. He, he explains to the children, he doesn't know who it is they're looking for, he doesn't recognize that name, but he's not being held as a captive here. He, he's, being, he's being hosted here by a wonderfully gracious woman. But he says, at a certain time, I sit in this chair and they bolt me into this chair because I have memories or I have thoughts about something else and it's very distressing. Well, I'll fast forward through the story. You'll have to read it to get the rest of the details. But the, the witch comes back and she finds the children and she finds the prince. By now, the spell has been broken and he's about ready to take her on. But she uses her magic. And she begins to bewitch not only the prince once again, but now the children and He's called a marsh wiggle. You'll have to read and find out what a marsh wiggle is. I don't have time to explain it. But, but she's bewitching these from the overworld and the prince by telling them there is no overworld. This Narnia that you're talking about, where is that? This Aslan that you say is sent to us to rescue this prince, I think you might have imagined that. I think this whole world above is just something that you've dreamed up to meet your own needs. Fast forward through the story. The spell is broken. The children are released. Why do I tell you that story? Because that whole scene of bewitching is, I think, exactly where you and I find ourselves today in post-Christian North America. I think that you and I today every day are being bewitched 
we are hearing through every possible means that this world that the Bible describes for us, this story that the Bible tells for us, isn't really real. It's, it's imaginary. If it makes you feel good, great. But the real reality is the reality you can see and the reality you can touch. You don't believe me. All right, let me illustrate it this way. Every single person in the world has four questions on their mind, somewhere in the back of their mind. Who am I? How do I tell the difference between right and wrong? What am I here for and where am I going? Everybody wants the answer to those questions. The Bible describes one set of answers to those questions. And our world is giving us another set of answers. Our world tells us that you and I really are only physical beings. When's the last time you heard anybody on CBC or CNN or even Fox talk about an eternal soul? We're physical beings, which means the most important thing you can do with a physical being is take care of it, look after it, have it avoid all the pain and the problems that you can. Whatever else you do, don't let anything bad happen to your physical body. This is the answer that the world is providing to the question of, who am I? But the Bible gives a different answer. The Bible says that while we have a physical body and we've got to be good stewards of this physical body, the most important part about us is our eternal soul, that part that doesn't die. Well, if that's the right answer to the question, then what we do with our eternal souls is the most important thing we can do. You, you tracking with me? I told you this was a little bit more complicated, but stay with me. You and I, every day are being given a different answer to that question than the one the world gives us. Same with the question of morality. How do I decide what's right and wrong? The Bible's pretty clear that right is defined and wrong are defined by the character of God. But the world tells us the definition of right and wrong is decided by a majority vote. The Bible tells us that we are here to glorify God. That's our purpose in life. The world tells us we're here to find fulfillment, to fulfill ourselves, to maximize ourselves, to achieve our potential. Very different answers. Scripture says we have an eternal soul that has an eternal destiny. And the greatest thing that we can look forward to is to be in the presence of God in what we call heaven. That's not the answer we're getting from the world. Now, pardon that deviation into philosophy, but here's the point. There's only one set of answers that produces unshakable joy. And it's the answers we find in Scripture. These answers that are found in Scripture have brought unshakable joy to people in the worst possible circumstances. They have sought people through difficulties that stagger the mind. They have enabled people to face martyrdom for the sake of Jesus Christ. There's only one set of answers that can give you unshakable joy, and it's found in Scripture. You remember what it feels like to hit a golf ball just right? You remember what it feels like to hit a softball just right, just in the meat of the bat? Do you remember what it feels like when you're swimming in an unfamiliar place 
and you can't touch bottom. And there is an instinctively rising sense of panic. And then you touch bottom. That's what Scripture does for us. It allows us to touch what's really real. It opens our eyes to see the truth, to understand how to make the right decision in a particular set of circumstances. And by making the right decision, we can experience this unshakable joy that God makes available to us. So Scripture's kind of like that x-ray machine in the Moncton Airport. Don't you wish you could get around there and see what's in people's bags? But there sit those agents. I think what they're doing back there is watching the stuff go by, and they can see what's in there even if that bag is locked up. This is what Scripture can do for us. Scripture's an alarm that wakes us up at that moment we're about to be bewitched. Number four, a fourth way that God provides unshakable joy through his word is through pictures. We all like pictures. We don't ever outgrow our need to read a book with pictures in it. We think we do, but we don't. We still like pictures. YouTube is proof of that. You want to know how to change the plumbing under your sink? You YouTube it. You can YouTube everything. You could probably YouTube how to shut up a long-winded preacher if you wanted to, <laughs> which I'm sure you don't, but you could because we love pictures. A picture's worth a thousand words. The Bible is a book filled with pictures. God could have said to us, you and I need to face our giants courageously and God will give you victory. He could have said that, and he kind of does. But what's really cool is he gives us a picture. There's little David with his little sling taking on Goliath. And suddenly that spiritual challenge is something we can understand, we can identify with, we can see ourselves doing. He could have just said to us, you need to step out in faith and do something you can't imagine yourself doing. He could say that to us, and he kind of does, but he gives us a picture of old Abram leaving Ur and Haran and going to a land he doesn't even know where he's going. And suddenly that challenge to step out in faith is a whole lot more understandable. The book of Hebrews 11 is filled with stories like that. A picture book. Of course, the greatest picture we get in Scripture is that of Jesus. Paul points this out here. Look at verse 3. Look what he says. Therefore, <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews, chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Here it is, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured. By the way, that verb is the same verb used in Romans 15, 5 by Paul. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. God could have said to us, you need to be willing to die for me. You need to be willing to take up your cross and follow me. And he does say that. But even better, he gives us a picture of that kind of faithfulness. But even as I say that, 
Even as I say that the Bible is like a picture book and God gives us endurance and encouragement, unshakable joy through these pictures, even the picture of Jesus, even as I say that Jesus is an example for us, you realize that he's more than that, don't you? Coming to Moncton Wesleyan Church isn't just a matter of holding up Jesus and his sacrifice in front of us and saying, now, he did that for you, you go out and do that for him. It's more than that, isn't it? Because Jesus isn't just an example of unshakable joy in the midst of dire straits. Jesus is actually the source. Listen to me. This is number five. Jesus is actually the source of unshakable joy. He doesn't just show you how to muster up unshakable joy. He manages to find a way to put it in your heart. How does he do that? But listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Listen carefully. Therefore, Paul writes, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All right, a lot of words. Let me unpack it. First thing Paul says is, you have been brought into a relationship with God, the relationship you were made for through Christ. We've been justified by faith. We've been reconciled to God as a result of the work of Christ. The second thing Paul says to us in the verses I just read to you is that as a result of this, you and I experience things like peace with God, hope, perseverance, love. To me, those are just other ways of describing unshakable joy. Would you not agree? So because of Christ, we now experience unshakable joy. The last thing Paul tells us in these five verses that I just read for you from Romans 5 is that God does so by putting the Spirit of God into our lives. Listen to what he says. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love, listen, has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let me give it to you simply. The Bible is a source of unshakable joy because the Bible describes how God, through Christ, can put a Holy Spirit unshakable joy factory in your life. Unshakable joy can rise up and bubble out from you, not because you found the strength to muster it up, but because the Spirit of God is living in us. It's coming from within. And the Bible is where we learn of that. The Bible is where we learn of our need for that. The Bible is where we discover that God makes this available to us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of God. So Scripture, in addition to other ways of providing this for us, Scripture actually allows us to step into the story of God's redemption. I always loved to read. When I was a little kid, I would read books like stories of Babe Ruth or Davy Crockett or other heroes, and I always was in those stories. Anybody else like that? I'd read those stories, and I was a character in those stories. But eventually, I'd get to the end of the book, and I'd have to go back to just being Steve. 
But there's one book. There's one book where I can actually be a character in that story. And it's this one. You talk about unshakable joy. So what I came to tell you is the thing you want, God's provided it for us. And he's provided it through his word. But I also came to ask you this question. If you and I have at our disposal access to the very thing we've all confessed we needed, why don't more of us take advantage of it? You said you would come up here and take the pill if I had them. And yet a recent survey done by LifeWay said church-going people like us, if I asked 10 of you to stand up at random, only two of you out of the 10 would be reading the Bible on a daily basis. Only two of you would read it on a daily basis. Two of you wouldn't read it at all. And less than half would read it at least once a week. It's exactly what we need, and we're not taking advantage of it. Now, if you know me, you know I'm not trying to spin a guilt trip. This is not about why don't you, why don't you, why don't you. We need it. It's here. Welcome to Shopper's Drug World. Take advantage of it. Put it in your lives. Make time for it. It's worth it. Figure out how to study this book. There's endurance and encouragement that's waiting for you. It's given to you. Here it is. Come and get it. Three takeaways. First, make time for it. Especially if you are a parent, make time for it and make time for it with your children. Teach them young. Grandparents, find a way to get the word into the lives of your grandchildren. Second takeaway, as a church, whatever else you become in this next chapter of your existence, I would hope that the people of Greater Moncton know you as a church that lives by the word. I would hope they know that when they come to this church, they're going to hear the word in the pulpit and in classes, and in Bible studies. I hope they will know that this is a place where they can hear the Word. And as I mentioned, I know you're a new pastor. I know this is where his heart is. And I suspect it's where you are right now. But I'm here to say, make sure that never changes. And my third takeaway is this. Pray for Kingswood. Let me connect the dots again. We're a Bible college. We exist for the purpose of training men and women how to discover unshakable joy for themselves and to dispense it to others. Do you suppose that the enemy of our souls is happy about that? Pray for Kingswood. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the, the ministry that it has had through the years. And as it steps into this new season, I pray that this would be a place, and these would be people for whom the Word of God is of primary importance, a source of unshakable joy, which our province needs more of. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.